Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Jacob T. Levy, <laughs> political theorist from McGill University, who I have known through his writings for years now, as the first time I've actually met him in person and uh, meeting him live. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you very much for yeah. having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, so it's uh, it's... You know, as I was saying to you before we, we went live, I have a number of friends and former students who've taken classes with you at McGill, and they all know you as this live performer, I, as the, you know, through lectures, and they speak very highly of, of you and that persona, which I had no idea even what your voice sounded like. I mean, I didn't know if you were going to be speaking with like a thick Leo Strauss, like, you know, accent. <laughs> you know? They, they, uh, I, I lost, I no I lost the th- thick Scottish brogue about five years ago. Yeah, now. right, exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in New Hampshire. That's right. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. My uh, my wife's parents lived there for for a number of years, and we were, I mean, they're, she's a New Englander, so we're down there often. But uh, So no, how did you get into... The thing is I'd never come to Montreal from New Hampshire, Uh partly because I lived in the southern corner of the state and it's not such a close ride, and partly because I just wasn't the kind of teenager who drives north to – who does the kinds of things that New Hampshire teenagers drive north to Montreal for. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't do yeah. any of that, so I never made the trip. Yeah, well, I mean, I was, that, that was like they call in New England. They still all over – I mean, I learned this from my, my wife's family, but like they still – they refer to Montreal as Sin City. Yeah. Because this was – during prohibition and even before this is where you came up to like you know let's, let's do some shots you know let's get like wasted go to brothels and all this stuff and they are so those new englanders they are so much trouble that when i was when i was younger there were actually bars in montreal that would have signs that said no bostonians allowed really because they would have they would have party buses that would come from south boston and these buses filled with, you know, guys that had just turned like 18, 19 year olds. 
and they would just show up and I had never seen I had never seen anything like this. Like they had a kind of a kind of drinking culture that uh was just insane. They would get completely wasted and then they would just start trying to start a fight with every guy and trying to hit on every woman. And they would end up like, you know, just in these bar fights that look like something out of like a like a western, you know, with like stuff flying all over the place and so I, I, I guess you you were I not believe it. You were not in that that demographic. I was really and truly <laughs> not. So how did you end up in political theory? What is your what was your what was the love story? How did you end up in that? It was really the most likely topic for me from about day one of undergraduate, and that makes it very hard to pinpoint anything. My uh, first class with my allocated freshman advisor at Brown was an intro to political philosophy class that went Plato through Rawls. Now, I'd already signed up for that and I'd already chosen that advisor, which means by the time of the summer before freshman year of college, I know that this interests me. There are a number of moments where I so you're, you're about and the same age of me. Off. So this would have been like when the Cambridge School was really hot and like Republicanism and Pocock and all those people. Though as an 18-year-old, I hadn't heard of any of that. Um, I, I started off in high school reading a lot of intellectual history, history of political thought. So not Cambridge School Pocock, but Bernard Balin. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bernard, ba- Bernard Balin's Ideological Origins of the American Revolution was the first – academic book I ever read. I read it on oh, my, my coffee, beautiful, coffee, beautiful coffee breaks yeah. while working at the supermarket when I was 16. Wow. I just loved it. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. <clears throat> yeah. uh, from time to time, I thought about other things. I thought about history. I thought about philosophy to a certain degree. And I thought about testing things that weren't academic careers. But from the time I was 18, this was always the path that I was defaulting to. I thought about law, but this was always what was most likely, and I was testing out other things to see whether I liked them better. But this was the thing that I kept coming back to loving. Okay. And so, and you, where did you go after Brown? What was the next step, sort of in grad school? Like, what did you study? I spent a year between undergrad and graduate school as a Fulbright scholar in Australia studying with the political theorist Chandran Kukathis, who is now at the London School of Economics. That was shortly after Australia had, for the first time, recognized Aboriginal land rights uh, in the fundamental law, recognized by the Supreme Court in the Mabo decision in 1993, and I went in 93-94. And I spent a year studying Aboriginal land rights as a case study for the kinds of things I wanted to think about with respect to rights of minorities. And also just benefiting from the chance to study with Chandran. Then after that year, I went and got my MA and PhD at Princeton. Okay. And who did you work with there? My dissertation committee was Amy Gutman, George Kateb, and Jeremy Waldron. I also studied a fair bit with Alan Ryan, uh, who then left partway through my graduate career to go to Oxford, so he wasn't on my committee and with uh, Robert George, the very conservative legal philosopher, who's yeah. <laughs> become much more famous since then. Yeah. Wow. So you've described your worldview, which I find hilarious, as that you, you sort of see the world as a post-apocalyptic hellscape, <laughs> okay? <laughs> which I was telling uh, Eric that that should be the title of this like podcast for sure. But what do you... 
what do you mean by that? Like, why do you look at this as a, a? Because you know, I I grew up in an intensely Protestant environment, um, and there very much was kind of the Augustinian view that this is a fallen world and we have to um, make the best of uh, an imperfect people and imperfect situation and perfection is um, is something that we long for but will never achieve you know in the city of man uh, but so I relate to that but I'm wondering how do you get to there like as a you know a, a guy from New Hampshire <laughs> so what what you just said has ended up being kind of part of my th- theoretical equipments in a secularized way that wasn't where post-apocalyptic hellscape started for me. That started as a <laughs> hashtag social media joke commentary on the pop culture of the 2000s. The line that I would run was, look, we, we hit a certain kind of cultural peak in about 1998, 1999. It ended with the rise of reality television and everything since 2000, 2001. And I had a spiel about how Buffy went to hell and X-Files went to hell <laughs> And quality scripted television started falling away and reality television took over. Everything since then has been not worrying that the world's going to hell, but taking comfort in the knowledge that it already has. And so every morning that I wake up and the zombies haven't eaten my brain yet, it's a win. There's a way in which post-apocalyptic hellscape isn't meant to be counsel of despair. It's meant to be encouraging. Uh, It can't get worse. It can't get worse. Uh, Now – Things can go on getting very bad, mm-hmm. uh, and there are ways in which I've had to take back the pop culture diagnosis. <laughs> the golden age of television eventually replaced the yeah. horror and hell of the yes. tidal wave yeah. of reality television. Uh, but as as the pop cultural part of the diagnosis has fallen away, the genuine Calvinism has kicked in in a more <laughs> theoretical way. And I, I'm, after all, from New Hampshire, so – Calvinism is part of the atmosphere oh, yeah. <laughs> that I grew up in. I used to take lots of pictures of the street names in uh, specifically where uh, where like my my wife's parents lived for for quite a while, and it was all like bloody brook purgatory road, <laughs> and like not ironically, <laughs> like that was like a lot of the the street names and the, like really intense. You know, like perdition way and yeah. like stuff like that. And, like, and after I arrived at McGill, I started teaching medieval political theory and so started reading Augustine much more seriously than I ever had so as a political theory before. He really is. He's so, so good. Now, what, what Augustine and Calvinism teach us, of course, isn't post-apocalyptic hellscape. It's simply fallen condition. What the post-apocalyptic hellscape joke has in common with Augustinianism is to tell people not to be too surprised when things go badly. And that's a recurring feature of my political theory from even before I really rediscovered Augustine, from even before the post-apocalyptic hellscape joke came up. I think that there's a kind of trouble that people get themselves into intellectually and morally and politically when they take for granted that the natural course of events is good and right will win. And then they confront just this sheer shock and inability to comprehend when good and right don't win and when things turn out worse than they expect. And so the part of the post-apocalyptic hellscape joke that I still mean seriously is to 
try to persuade people not to be so surprised when things go badly. And in politics, I think it's very important that people not be so surprised when things go badly that they don't naturalize the condition that says, well, of course, my side should always win and things should always turn out nicely. Uh, and so I don't have any political resources to deal with it when things go badly. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, you know, as I was saying before we went live, I, I just finished reading uh, your book on sort of like pluralism, rationalism and freedom. And as I was saying to the, you know, the producer before we started, like, it's, it's such a, a strange academic book in the sense that you, you clearly have internalized the, the Augustinian, we're almost sort of a federalist papers kind of like, you've, you've really internalized this vision because uh, you present these, these problems and you say like, we have these, there is no solution to this. There's basically, the problem is worse than you think. And here are our attempts, you know, to overcome our failings as individuals and as groups. And they're imperfect and they're not complete. And we basically just, we do our best and we are probably, it's probably good if we just acknowledge the fact that there are no permanent solutions. That's, you know, as a, you know, as and I, I recognize fully that libertarianism is a, it's a very mixed bag. I mean, it's like all sorts of different people and different perspectives. But in terms of the loudest libertarians online, this sort of Augustinian vision or temperament, this this, uh, you know, almost like oakshot conservative temperament, it seems to place you at odds with a lot of the loudest libertarians online because they seem to. Very much, you know, just as much as any kind of hardcore progressive, they've got the answer for everything. And they know exactly, you know, how to create the perfect rational society. I mean, they're like creating their city and speech, you know, without any hesitation. I mean, so, I mean, does this, does this like sort of friction, does this cause you bumps in that community or? Until the last two or three years, I didn't write very much in my academic work about libertarianism. It's never been my aspiration as a political theorist to provide the theoretical or philosophical foundations for the political beliefs that I happen to hold. And I want to write scholarship that's interesting and stimulating for people who are interested in big normative questions about politics, regardless of whether they have my particular view. Uh, Early on, I also noticed that – Well, that, that book was clearly your coming out <laughs> party then because you, you, you clearly are you know, laying that out in that book. Oh, it's, it's not that it was a secret that I was a libertarian, but my, my scholarship doesn't look like justifications no. for libertarianism. No. And one thing that I figured out relatively early, even in graduate school, was training as a political scientist was going to put me in a different place from the disciplinary attitudes – of a lot of my libertarian friends who come from philosophy, economics, or law. As a political scientist, I was stuck taking seriously the conditions of rule and the fact of political disagreement. And there are ways in which libertarian political philosophy, libertarian certain kinds of very normative libertarian law uh, 
try to idealize those away. This has now become really one of my theoretical preoccupations about political philosophy in general. And I'm interested in the problem of how many people imagine conflict away and imagine that one version or another of their city and speech or their contractarian thought experiment will dissolve all real moral conflict about politics. For example, it will mean that we're not really ruled because we've endorsed, we've consented to the whole structure that rules over us. If we're being ruled by a structure about which that isn't true, it's simply illegitimate and we should abolish it and replace it with one to which we have consented. And as a political scientist, I, I simply <laughs> couldn't ever take that seriously as a way to think about what what it's like to live in a world with power in it. So in the last couple of years, I've started to write more explicitly about the way that my worldview interacts with my libertarianism. And I have three articles or so out now that talk about what it would be like to reform libertarian ideas, reform libertarian thought in ways that take power and disagreement and rule more seriously and that do away with the temptation to just have a contractarian solution that dissolves all real problems or just announce, well, here are the correct rights and it must be the case that we can respect all the correct rights simultaneously uh, or it must be the case that there's an appropriate kind of government that would have the appropriate foundations and consent and have the appropriate rights protecting features. Politics isn't like that and I think that there's real value in normative libertarianism as a set of beliefs about what we should do in the political condition. How should we steer things? What direction should things move? But very little value and no more value for libertarians than for anyone else in the kind of ideal theoretic or social contractarian imagination of solving all political problems at once and imagining away the permanence of conflict and power. Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful uh, – in Game of Thrones, I don't know if you watched that, but there's okay. a wonderful scene in Game of Thrones where I think it's uh, Littlefinger um, is talking to Cersei and, and he says, uh, you know, basically – he says something that I've heard plenty of libertarians and anarchists and progressives and other people say, he says, you know, what is power? It's basically just all an illusion, right? And she orders her, her guards, kill him. And they like slam him up against the wall and they're ready to kill him. And she's like, um, I've changed my mind. Don't. And he's completely shocked. And, and she goes, that's what power is. And it's just this like amazing, like, oh, you think you're so clever? You like high IQ person who's like sort of thought through and gamed everything out. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and it, it sort of fits really nicely with, Another instance uh, in Game of Thrones uh, where there is – I think it's – somebody's talking about Ned Stark and says, yeah, he was a very honorable man, but he's dead now, right? And so, like, these people who think that somehow um, just having really – a really trenchant analysis of power or having really good intentions and morals somehow solves problems, it doesn't. There is, like, real power – and if you don't somehow find a way of dealing with that, um, it will uh, sort of render your analysis or your your virtue, you know, null and void, right? So, and I think the the founders at their best, the founders of the American Republic, 
were really, really, really clear on this. Like, they saw that very, very clearly. And I actually was kind of thinking by the end of, like, your book, like, how did you not end up, like, you know, working with the Federalist Society or something? Like, in another world, I can totally imagine you being with them, you know? I mean, how did that not happen? Your parallel universe, right? The multiverse. Like, is there a Jacob Levy that's working there in the multiverse? Like, There, there almost certainly is. <laughs> now, part of the answer is that uh, while I have a master's in law, I'm not a lawyer. And the Federalist Society is very much an institution of American legal academia. Uh, before I came to McGill, when I was at the University of Chicago – I was gradually getting somewhat closer to legal academia. I, the University of Chicago Law School, which is a very, very strong Federalist Society law school, was the best intellectual environment I've ever been in. I got to spend a year there. It was really wonderful. Uh, and my conversation partners and my scholarship were increasingly shifting toward that world. Coming to McGill meant – leaving behind American law, which was the law that I knew about. I know very little Canadian law to my embarrassment to this day. And I didn't have an institutional affiliation with law here. And also the legal debates here are just utterly, utterly different and very much less ideological. Not non-ideological, but very much less ideological. Now, I don't know whether that nearby possible world, Jacob, who stayed <laughs> stayed at the University of Chicago uh, and – gradually drifted more and more into the orbit of legal academia, whether he would have stayed in the Federalist Society orbit. Uh, there are differences between the way the Federalist Society looks from within law schools and the way it looks in American politics. And within law schools, it's, it's by and large a wonderful institution. Yes, it's, all it's, 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 all it's very yeah. pluralistic. It's very encouraging of debate. I have my second ever Federalist Society organized event coming up in a few days. I'm going to the University of Connecticut uh, where at the law school I'm going to give a conversation talk based on an old essay that I wrote called Black Liberty Matters about the relationship between theories of limits on the state and the realities of how ideology of freedom has been used to suppress African Americans throughout American history. Within the law schools, it's, it's a very intellectually rich and pluralistic institution. It has become partly something else in public and political life. And I'm not sure that nearby possible world Jacob, who was part of the Federalist Society in 2007, 2008, still would have been as the majority of the Federalist Society has gone what we refer to on social media as but Gorsuch. <laughs> <laughs> in the era of Trump, um, I think that the responsible thing for anyone who cares about human freedom to be is never Trump, not the kind of person who says, well, Trump is awful and Trump is corrupt and Trump is violating the Emma Lumens Clause and, 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 but he's appointing some of our friends to the courts. And I'm really unhappy with how much people I like and admire and respect have been willing to swallow everything else for the sake of seeing judicial appointments that they like. So it's possible that nearby possible world, Jacob, would be gone from the Federalist Society by 2019. 
<laughs> even if he'd been substantially in that intellectual orbit for 10 years in between. Yeah. So you would have been kind of a, a like a David Frum, like, like a leaving era. Like I'm not out of, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm like, I can't follow this. One thing that, you know, you, you bring this up, you know, a lot in your work and I, I, I can't stop thinking about it, but on, on my father's side, I'm a direct descendant of Maryland slaveholders. And they were actually the, the largest slaveholders in the Maryland colony on the, the eastern shore, the Dorseys. And they were very enthusiastic um, to proponents of, they were really in, in support of the revolution. And they very much, they talked you know a great deal about freedom, even as they were you know, slaveholders. And they really fought for the idea that, you know, your home should be your castle, your state should be like states' rights and community rights. And we should, you know, communities, you know, like we hear right now a great deal in Quebec, right? We should be able to, in our community, decide how we want to like, uh, how we want to organize things in our community. And I should be able to decide in my home how I want to raise my kids and if I want to like beat them, I should be allowed to like beat them. If I want to, you know, beat my wife, I should be able like, so I'm wondering coming away from your work, which, which just sort of embraces this, like these hard questions that can't be totally resolved. How do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, cause this is, you know, I know that you don't have your head in the sand at all about this shit. So how do you make sense of these kinds of things that often the, you know, the loudest yelps for liberty are coming from the drivers of Negroes? Like, how do you sort of make sense of that, you know, um, as the, a libertarian and somebody who, as a political theorist? Uh, the, the, the line just quoted was from Samuel Johnson yes, commenting yeah, yeah. on the American Revolution. Uh, and if I can back up for a couple of steps, you, you mentioned my book but haven't said much about what it's about yet. So just to explain, rationalism, pluralism, and freedom is directly about the tension between looking for freedom in one's local, particular, customary, uh, sometimes voluntary association or group, and looking for freedom to be protected by the central state against the abuses of those local groups that have internal local power holders. There are good reasons why a lot of the ideological language of liberty has very often been deployed strictly against central state power. You know, political ideas, grand scale political philosophies, they are most often about what it is that's going at the highest stage of politics. And so the American revolutionaries fighting on the highest stage of politics declared their fealty to liberty by which they meant things having to do with the monarchy, with the Westminster Parliament that was ruling them from across the ocean, then eventually later with the relationship between the central state and the emerging states of the American Federation uh, or with the power of the executive in the American Federation. Liberty was keeping those big, powerful, distant governments out of your business, whether your business meant your individual property, which is what a lot of libertarians go to first, but also, and in a lot of ways more often, your state, your town, your church, your association, your family, your plantation. 
And so what Samuel Johnson saw, which is that the really passionate defenders of liberty as an abstract ideal, the people like Thomas Jefferson, were very often themselves engaged in direct slave owning or indirect slave trading or at least the defense of the political rights of these slaveholding states. Uh, it's complicated the degree to which the American Revolution itself was a, a pro-slavery or, or an anti-slavery moment. There were moments of both. There were coalitions of both supporters and opponents of slavery involved in the revolution. Uh, and it's not as clear cut as uh, people will sometimes Oh yeah, I mean, like, like my, my 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 friend Francois Furstenberg, who who was at UDM for a while. I don't know if you met him while he was in Montreal, but uh, he's back at Johns Hopkins now. But we were, uh, he he's written a lot about this, and he his basic argument. I mean, I'm vastly some you know simplifying it, but his argument is that these guys weren't hypocrites. It's not like they were – It's you are totally misreading it if you think that people like Thomas Jefferson were uh, these flaming hypocrites. They they were arguing about freedom because they saw its opposite every single day. They They weren't hypocrites. They knew exactly what they were talking about. They valued freedom a great deal because they understood what the absence of freedom looked like all the time. He said it's a it's a better you know he was he was on the podcast and we, we talked about this and like he said it's a better analysis to say that somebody who has been a prisoner or been a prison guard who might become like a hardcore libertarian because they understand what unfreedom feels like and looks like very very into it's not theoretical for them at all right so he says you know the reason why the drivers of Negroes were the people, you know, the greatest cries for freedom because they understood what freedom was, you um, know? like and, that's And this is the thesis, this is the really central animating theme of Orlando Patterson's great book, Freedom and the Making of Western Culture. Yes, yeah. That the idea of freedom takes its strongest, most moralized, most political hold in slave societies or in societies where slavery is particularly intense. Amen. Um, yeah. Partly because you get some slaves and former slaves who really greatly value the opportunity to not be slaves, and partly because you have slaveholders, slaveholders, yeah, who look at the reality of slavery and say, "Right, exactly, this fucking sucks." <laughs> exactly yeah. what I think it means to be free is not to be treated the way I, that I treat my slaves. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I think that still makes them hypocrites. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, what they're not is ignorant. Okay. Yeah, that was. I should have used that word. The, no, they're they're hypocrites in the sense that they're not applying the same thing to other people that they do to themselves. But they're not like unself-aware. You know, yeah. they know exactly what they mean. Right um, now, the story of the American Revolution still isn't quite what we would read back into it from the mid nineteenth century, because there was a great deal of optimism including optimism on the part of the slaveholders, including optimism on the part of people like Jefferson and Washington and Madison, that slavery was headed for a relatively rapid extinction. Uh, there was some reason to think this. The American states gradually start enacting relatively liberal manumission laws. Some of the northern states start enacting abolition laws. Uh, it's understood that it will be a gradual generation-long process but that we're on our way. Uh, 
And I'm, I'm fully convinced that Jefferson believed in his heart that the end of slavery would be faster in an independent America than it would have been under British rule. He was just wrong. Partly was wrong for reasons that he couldn't necessarily have predicted in 1776. The invention of the cotton gin in the 1790s really transformed the economic value of slavery in, in continental North America, turned American cotton farming more into like what was happening on the plantations of the West Indies. Uh, then another thing that changes happens in the West Indies when the Haitian Revolution, the only <laughs> successful slave revolution in history, um, utterly terrifies white slave owners throughout the Western Hemisphere. And the idea of gradual manumission that includes the gradual integration one way or another of former slave populations in the United States comes to seem utterly unacceptable in the American South. It comes to seem like a mortal threat. And then Jefferson himself plays some part because Jefferson is one of the early contributors to the rise of scientific racism, which gets adopted as an ideological veneer over the course of the 19th century. Wasn't part of political thought in the 1770s, but by the 1810s, 1820s, a society that has grown unexpectedly more economically dependent on slavery, not less, and grown more violent and repressive with respect to slavery, not less, in response to the Haitian Revolution, is casting about looking for ways to make this seem okay. And scientific racism. That's so true. Notes on the state of Virginia. He has a lot of scientific racism there. That's right. That's, and, it, there is a lot of and, stuff in and, there. And he was really one of the. They lack impulse control. They got big necks. <laughs> like, yeah. He, it's so true. And, yeah. and Jefferson was thought of as being one of the leading scientific minds of the Western Hemisphere. He was. A, a participant in the Enlightenment culture. And if. The great scientist and enlightened statesman Thomas Jefferson thinks this. If the author of the Declaration of Independence thinks, it turns out not all men are created equal after all. That becomes an extremely important crutch for scientific racism over the course of the early 19th century. And the notes on the state of Virginia are very important text in the genesis of scientific racism. Yeah. I, it's funny. I never really – but that's – that. that completely fits. Well, you know, I just mentioned Francois Furstenberg, but um, in his, the the article that eventually became the book on this, it was a wonderful article in the Journal of American History. And he, he begins the article, I mean, it's been years since I've read it, but he begins the article with this, this anecdote. And it's all these, like, all these Virginia planters, and they're at a party, and they're toasting the Haitian Revolution. And they're they're fucking toasting the Haitian Revolution. And and he talks about like their toast that they gave. And he said, How does this make sense given our present paradigm of what the American revolutionaries were all about? And their toasts basically are um if you're not willing to die for your freedom, you don't deserve your freedom. And they have been willing to like turn and and fight for their freedom, and they uh, so therefore they deserve it. And it was this totally like almost like medieval might is right argument, like you know whatever is is good, like that. It's it's crazy, but he says that was very much central to their ideology of freedom. You know, the, the tree of liberty must be you know watered by the blood of that. That the fact that our slaves. 
practically never um never sort of rise up uh is is proof that they don't deserve their freedom but at the same time we need to have our militias and our slave patrols we need to be on top of our game because if they can if we're so weak and decadent that they can like rise up spartacus style and like kill us then we deserve to be killed and they deserve their freedom what a wacky world i mean but it, it's not a world that doesn't make sense that that's right and people's people's ideas do matter to them and their principles do matter to them they then struggle with the moments of conflict between their ideas and their interests. Now, I don't know this story. I haven't seen this article. I, I can't believe that, that was a very widespread attitude in the planter class or that it lasted for more than a minute. He never said that it was widespread. <laughs> he never said it was – he just said but, but, this but that, did happen. Yes. That, and he said like, yeah. why does this make sense? Well, why it makes sense is is fascinating yes. and is a window into – into a way of seeing the world that if you can reckon with it, you can understand what this country is about. Like, and this country is not just built on, on some sort of head in the sand, willful ignorance and blindness. No, they, they had thought this out a lot. Yes. You just may not like where they went with it, but they thought it out, you know, so, which is, you know, a good thing to to realize, right? I mean, because that's one of the biggest temptations whenever you're, well, you know this very well, but one of the biggest temptations whenever you're dealing with your grandparents or the past is, ah, a bunch of idiots. They didn't know what they were. We're so much smarter than them. No, not yeah. really. <laughs> uh, I, I actually had a piece in Vox a week or two ago now on the assumption of moral progress. They... They commissioned a symposium on the question, what do we do now that will be considered morally unthinkable in 50 years? And they came and asked me to write for it. And I said, well, I don't think that I can because the only thing that I would have to say is that's entirely the wrong question. And it assumes that 50 years from now there will just be not only moral knowledge but moral progress such that they will be right about things that we are wrong about and you can take that for granted. Which is an attitude that, when projected backwards, which is always what it's about, allows us now always to say, well, we're right about everything, and our benighted, primitive ancestors were wrong. And also, and not coincidentally, allows us to look around at the people we disagree with today and say, oh, well, you're backwards. You're atavistic. History's not on your side. History doesn't have sides. And we see breath through a glass darkly. That yeah. is absolutely right. Um, and when you project back, I suggested this in my article. Uh, they, uh, I was very pleased. They said, well, go ahead, write that. So I wrote that. I read it and I could not believe that they published it <laughs> yeah. when I read it. Cause like, I was just like, this is such a, your whole article was a big finger to their, to their, the premise of their question. Now, as I said, my it was initial, a middle finger to their question. I, I, I hope it wasn't rude. I didn't mean it to be rude, but I, I did. It was. If you understood what you were saying, it was but, very rude. But but <laughs> I, but I I did openly say at the outset, I don't think that you actually want me because here's what I'll say. And <laughs> it's a stupid question. And they went away for two days, and they came back, and they said, "No, that would be great. That uh, you know, it makes it more entertaining. Looks like a debate." Um, 
I didn't have a chance to correspond with the other people in the symposium. And I didn't mean for it to look rude toward all of them in particular, but it's, when you look at the symposium, it's 15 different hobby horses. In, fi in 50 years, it will be unthinkable to have abortion. It will be unthinkable to criminalize sex work. It will be unthinkable to have 401ks. The, the progress of moral history will be to abolish 401ks. And then at the very end, in the bottom right-hand corner of the matrix, uh, what will be unthinkable is having this stupid question. And I, I worry that that came across looking rude, but I was open. To I, thought I, was was awesome. I, was open I thought it was awesome. I thought it was awesome. I took uh, Dorothy Ross's intellectual history seminar, which was just mind blowing. It was amazing at, at Hopkins before she retired. And she was just, just this unbelievably wise woman who, you know, studied with Hofstadter and like she, she was there kind of at the, the the high water mark of American nonfiction in the 1950s. She was right there. She knew all of them. She was like, and then she, she opted out to like raise her family and she came back into academia and, and uh, I got her at the tail end. But, but I remember she, she had us like, um, you know, read a bunch of articles. There was a journal that asked the same sort of question. I mean, this was in the, when I was in grad school in the, in the nineties and like, and there were, they all had, and I remember Carl Sagan's response. Carl Sagan was like, you know, it'll be considered totally immoral that we banned, like, mind-altering substances. It <laughs> will be totally immoral that we banned, like, um, you know, sexual activity. And it was just all kind of, like, wish fulfillment on the part of, like, the people asked, right? And we had just, just you know, gone through all of this, like, kind of very uh, i mean she's she grew up jewish in in wisconsin but um but she she had a very kind of augustinian protestant view of things and she said what's wrong with all of this you know you've you've been studying with for the last year what's wrong with all of this and uh you know the student in the class who was uh, really kind of the 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 really bright light in our seminar uh, he said, he was a really conservative guy, and he said, they all think that they can see the future. She said, exactly. You don't know. You know, if, if the study of history should make anything clear to you, it's that the smartest people in any particular given point in history, if you go and look at their letters and diaries and their and their pronouncements, they didn't have a very clear idea of what was going to come next. You know, because like what's going to happen That's next right. is often like highly contingent and it's all these weird things involved. So the, it's very arrogant to think that. So I thought your and, response and, 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 was amazing. The, and, and, and the error is twofold, though. There's there's the belief you can see the future. And I suspect that some of the people don't really mean that part. But there's also the belief that if I could see the future, what it would tell me would be the morally right answers. And I want people to imagine that they're in. 1895. I look forward 50 years, and what I see is genocide at the heart of Germany, deliberately induced famine, killing tens of millions in the Soviet Union. A few years after that, the deliberately in induced catastrophes in communist China. Uh, do I in 1895 say, oh, I guess that's the winning side of history. I guess that's the morally right answer. That would be utterly disastrously the wrong way to think. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you can see patterns emerging, even if you have a good sense of the future, that doesn't tell you what the morally right answers are because history doesn't have that kind of moral progress built into it. Sometimes things get better, but sometimes they don't. Yeah. Well, it's like that wonderful line in uh, the, the education of, of Henry Adams where he says, like, you know, a child born, like, in 1900, you know, by the age, you know, would have less to learn from, like, things have changed so rapidly in this brief period of time that if you were to be sort of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it's been years since I've read it, but if you were to be sort of extrapolating from what has happened for the last 2,000 years, you would be so wrong, like completely wrong, right? But in terms of thinking about the future and what is actually, I mean, I know you're also like a big Neil Stevenson fan, right? Like Neil yes, Stevenson's fiction, yes. right? And one thing that is always kind of striking to me in a lot of his fiction, I mean, you can see this, uh, in Snow Crash, you can see it in Diamond Age, you can see it in a lot of them, that he he clearly seems to be banking on the fact that pluralism is going to fail, that the multicultural society was an interesting experiment, but that it ultimately is going to fail and that we're going to fall into um, sort of tribalism, into various kinds of like ethnically or religiously defined groups, right? That, um, I mean, obviously this is just a, a vision of the future. And my my guess from the interviews I've seen with Neil Stevenson is that uh, unlike Carl Sagan saying, you know, this is what the future is going to be like, you busting on somebody for dropping acid is going to be seen as really horrible or being gay or something like that. But... My guess is that Neil Stevenson doesn't, he's not happy about this. He just thinks if I look at present trends and I look at the problems that this is going to be the future, right? Now, um, there's another Neil Stevenson fan, right? Um, who, well, I'll keep, but it's a, somebody who lives in Plata Marial, not far from me, uh, who was the head of the Bloc Québécois for quite a while. And he also is a big Neil, and he thinks Neil Stevenson is completely right um, about about this, and that he thinks Quebec's attitude towards multicultural Canada is the right one because uh, this was a very beautiful dream, a noble dream, but that it's not going to last. And what what do you think about all that? I mean, this you've thought about this a lot more than almost every you know almost everybody I know, except for maybe Daniel Weinstock, but like. What do you think about this? So I I would put it a little differently. I think the threads in the present that Stevenson is pulling on and seeing how far they go uh, are threads having to do with decentralization of effective power in in a way that's consciously neo-medieval. Um, it's not that the multicultural society will fail. It's that the nation state will fail. And what we see most sharply delineated, I think, in Snow Crash, but it's there in Diamond Age too, and there's some reason to think that he's imagining them as part of a continuous future with each other. Uh, you're seeing corporations very often taking the place of governing functions, which include multinational corporations that in their multinational face will have a kind of ethnic identity. So you'll have an Italian diaspora corporation that runs 
the mafia and the pizza delivery businesses and you sign up as a member of that corporation, whether or not you're Italian yourself, importantly, mm-hmm. whether or not you're Italian yourself, you just sign on as a member of the mafia pizza delivery corporation and you pay your protection and you get your protection and that will be the structure of political and economic power. Over the course of those two books, he offers a bunch of different examples, so only some of which have anything like an ethnocultural identity to it. And I think only because it's a cheap and easy and convenient organizing principle. If central power is broken down, you look for something. And the something could be just a business that you write a check to. But there are some advantages to being able to rely on kinship trust networks or attitudes of cultural familiarity. Um, There's also a certain amount of uh, stereotyping of the Chinese diaspora in particular that I think looks less less comfortable in retrospect uh, that the Chinese diaspora will really spontaneously shift in the direction of a strongly ethnocultural transnational identity. But for everyone else in those books, I think it's a much clearer analysis. Says, political economic power. Just it's funny. My 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 sixteen year old is completely fluent in Mandarin, Chinese, and it was just funny because he's like a six two like blonde haired blue eyed white guy. But he uh, that was the part of the actually the novel that he found most plausible. He's like their kind of sense of history and connection and like is so much more intense than anything I've seen. So he goes, that part actually, that piece makes makes sense to me. Uh, that, that in this world of radical decentralization, there would be some things that tracked diaspora ethnic identities. Yes, but I, I think the depiction of it for the Italians, um, <laughs> notwithstanding the mafia stereotype, uh, you know, they're stereotyping in it, but it's not treated as essentially Italian. Mm-mm. Whereas I think there's something essentialistic about the way that it's, a, well... The, the Chinese just will and the Chinese becomes all Chinese uh, and the, the end of the Diamond Age paints this as potentially the end of this era of neo-medieval decentralized power because Great China is on the march and Great China is going to go conquer Hong Kong in particular where a great deal of the novel set. But Great China is now acting like a powerful nation state that just has fifth columnists scattered all over the world. Uh, I, I don't think that part hangs together. Stevenson doesn't always stick the landing of his books. And <laughs> oh, are you di- kidding? And di- I, I don't. Di- I can't di- think of Dave. one where the, the ending Dave is the worst. All of his no, I I I actually cannot. Think. I, I I've think read all of his works. I think the ending of Cryptonomicon works. Yes, you're right. Actually, you actually that is that is the exception. But he fumbles the ending of. Actually, you know what I. I like the ending of Seven Eves too, which I haven't read. Uh, Seven Eves is like ha- bumped Diamond Age. Diamond Age was my favorite of his, but Seven Eves has has bumped it out. Um, I've read it three times now, and it's it's absolutely phenomenal. But that actually, the ending is good there too. But uh, but, but Snow Crash, Diamond Age, and the Baroque trilogy. Um, yeah, the the endings are just these 
train wrecks. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminds me of late career Robert Heinlein, where the endings of the books. Are what is the one uh, where the main character is Tristan? It's like the the career of of Dodo or something like yeah, um, the that uh, one the, also the, the, the rise and fall of Dodo. The rise and which, fall which of Dodo, was, which was co-authored. Yeah, uh, that's also like I I really liked that novel. You know, not only because the main character is named after my firstborn, uh, but like the uh, but. Um, but same thing. The ending is just out of nowhere, and it's just abrupt. It's like he just got tired of writing it. And but like, but it, at least there, I feel like it's it ends not with a bang, but a whimper. Whereas Diamond Age and Snow Crash end in these huge train wrecks. Dodo just kind of dwindles away. Yeah. a little bit at the end. Uh, I liked Dodo a lot, and it reminded me of some of why I was so enthusiastic about Stevenson for so long. I think that the co-author, and I feel terrible that I don't remember her name. Yeah, I don't I'm remember it either. Praising having a co-author. Yeah, I, I think the co-author contributed a lot, reshaped some of the ways that the book depicts women, um, and reined in a lot of his uneditable narrative habits. When you think about just the sheer sprawl of some of the books, and think about how much more efficient the rise and fall of Dodo is. Yeah. I think at a certain point, editors weren't willing to edit him anymore, but a co-author was willing to say, <laughs> no, I'm not putting my name on this. Yeah. If <laughs> You don't take that shit out. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think? I mean, what do you think about his, his, I mean, his idea that basically the, f- the future is tribal? So really good science fiction will often take some social thread and pull on it. And it, says, let's see what would happen. I don't think that's the same as prophecy. I think that science fiction at its best is this interesting kind of speculative social science. Uh, But it shouldn't be taken to be a full account of the future. It's more an examination of what this piece would look like. Now, I do think he takes very seriously and more seriously than, say, a lot of people um, in the 1990s and 2000s did the challenges to the nation state and what it can be like for both political and economic power to decentralize. Cryptonomicon is importantly about the way that secret keeping and uh, the ability to move information around can be a force of decentralization, taking authority and power away from the state. Um, Now, it's not only that. One of the things that's become increasingly evident and that now political scientists who study information and information technology uh, are really beating the drum about is everything that could empower all of the sub-state, non-state actors can also empower states in their relations with one another. And so the vision of the future that was WikiLeaks when people imagined WikiLeaks to be this spontaneous volunteer group of hackers – well, those tools can also be the tools of the really existing WikiLeaks, which is effectively an arm of Russian intelligence. Yeah. And Russia can advance state interests using these same kinds of tools. N- nothing, nothing is unidirectional. Nothing is so determinate that we say, ah, once we learn that there's economic power. Once we learn that there's computing, once we learn there's information technology, of course the world will be. I distrust all of those of courses. I really enjoy seeing the speculative thread teased out. 
But understand that it's everything put just on one side of the scale. And in a real world where you have human actors trying to turn things back to their advantage that are temporarily undermining their power, paradoxes kick in and tensions kick in and unexpected directions kick in. Um, I love good science fiction. Let's not treat it as future history. Yeah. Well, I mean, although although uh, Seven Eves is my favorite Stevenson novel, my favorite Stevenson character, you know, bar none, is Avi from Kryptonite. Yeah. He is... I, he's he's one of my favorite characters in fiction. Period. Like I, I wish you know. I wish I knew him. Like <laughs> I, I wish I kind of think I do actually. But like, but but Avi is like this, uh, this person who just I mean, he's very similar to you. Like he basically assumes the worst, and he's like the best thing we can do is to empower like people to be able to prevent genocides and things like, and horrible things in the future. We can't like prevent genocides from happening from these impulses. These are going to happen with regularity forever. Like he has this deeply, deeply cynical, you know, Augustinian view. I mean, although he's like an observant but, Jew, but, but, but like, but he also has a monomania. I mean, the, the monomania uh, drives the book. He has an idea for how to empower future resistors of power. Um, effectively, really, really, really good and secret offshore banking. Uh, <laughs> but now let's think about what we know about really, really good and powerful offshore banking. Uh, it is a place where the relatively weak, well, it's a place where the relatively advantaged among the really weak in some kinds of authoritarian societies can protect what they have. Now, I say the relatively advantage because they have to have something. The poorest of the poor in a totalitarian or despotic or authoritarian state, they don't have resources that they are concerned with trying to protect that are liquid and can be transmitted to Switzerland or Singapore or wherever. Uh, but the relatively advantaged, the, but politically weak, people who are in danger of expropriation and potentially in danger of genocide as part of the expropriation, which characterizes a lot of Jews through a lot of history, they are advantaged by the ability to convert their wealth to a liquid form and get it out of the country someplace away from the state that's trying to expropriate and kill them. But you know who else is advantaged by those systems? The cartels, the like. <laughs> the powerful state actors. Uh, oh. And so – Again, one of the really critical facts about the 2010s is the use of offshore banking and offshore financial instruments by Russia, by Russian plutocrats and the entanglement of the Russian state and the Russian elite. It turns out that this has been uh, maybe more of an issue than had been widely noticed almost since the fall of communism. But in the Putin era, it's become effectively official where – why is it that real estate is so often associated with Russian or Russian-Ukrainian moneyed interests? Well, because the Russian elites who run oil and national, natural gas companies or who are directly part of the Kremlin or the Kremlin circle and are extracting the wealth of the country, they don't have any place to put it in Russia. 
Um, Russia itself doesn't have secure property rights. Russia itself doesn't have a good financial system to, in which to invest your ill-gotten billions and tens of billions. Um, you know what's a good place to do? Go find a really shady, down-on-his-luck, serially bankrupt New York real estate developer. Oh, I'm thinking of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> um, a name is and, springing to mind. And, and start to use real estate in other countries as a good money laundering device. Or else um, you just start parking it in Swiss bank accounts. Um, now the Swiss bank accounts have become progressively less secret over the course of the 2000s. And that's a loss in important ways. There, there's a part of me that really valued the idea of real secrecy, real privacy, a real unbreakable bond between the banker and the person who's trying to protect their assets. But part of why it's become less secret is because it's become such a clear problem in the international financial system that the beneficiaries of the strong privacy protection for offshore banking, they weren't even the advantaged of the weak. They were the very, very strong. Extracting the wealth of their country, Russia in this case, uh, think of Congo, uh, the then Zaire in the 80s and 90s, the Philippines under Marcos, authoritarians who engage in the expropriation and then go hide the money. Yeah. So well, they, they, well, they were actually uh, one of my, my little sister's best friends. She grew up in Sarajevo and when everything, you know, fucking went crazy when Yugoslavia broke up, uh, they got out of there. And she has crazy stories about what that was like. But like, they came here and uh, and she's Jewish and then like when everything came out about like you know what this Switzerland and the Swiss bankers had done like during World War Two and in the late 30s uh, it turns out that a bunch of her relatives had been um, you know basically just robbed and, and killed mm -hmm. uh, and a bunch of the money was was put inside Swiss bank accounts well this all came out you remember when this all you know, you're the same age as me but when this all came out um, they had to make these big payouts and they had to find and so she um basically was contacted and got like like uh you know i think something like like a half like a check for like a half a million million dollars which is bullshit by the way it was like a fraction of the amount of money the wealth you know of you know 6 7 8 generations of work that was stolen you know but uh, but anyway they 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 found the relatives but so i remember that was the first time that i when i heard about that you know that uh i i was like oh yeah i can see why the secrecy is not all good you know okay. before i thought it was like nothing but good but like um you know it, it yeah it can also be used for a lot of really shady and, and stuff. i think it's, i think it's a funny thing about avi and cryptonomicon that he doesn't pay any attention to this. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's kind of strange for someone who is the I, th I think the son of Holocaust survivors and upset and mm -hmm. having lost his grandparents, having lost a lot, most of his family, uh, so concerned, so obsessed with making sure that that set of evils doesn't reproduce with the population being as powerless as they were. Not to think about what role the Swiss banks actually held. And to have my utopian idea be, well, let's have a really, 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 really Swiss bank. Yeah. That's, that's a funny monomania <laughs> in, 
in someone concerned yeah. with the Holocaust. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, uh, it, it's an odd blind spot. It's an odd blind spot. And, and you know, it is. it does seem to be something that I... You know, and I, I preface this by saying it's 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 the loud ones. It's the loud public online ones. But it does seem to be a blind spot that a lot of libertarians that are very vocal online have. Like, they don't seem to realize that, you know, I, I grew up in the southwest of Montreal, you know, where, you know, a good number of my friends became, went to the Hells Angels and Rock Machine and stuff like that. And, like... It's very obvious to me how like organized crime loved, you know, secrecy and loved like kind of having ways to like launder your money and things like that. So I don't, you know, I don't think like um, these things are necessarily always good, right? Right. There are hard questions involved in these things. Now, I think it's a very valuable thing to have libertarians and privacy advocates there and beating the relevant drum because it's always the interest of the power holders, the state, um, to say at least with respect to transactions in their own country, unlike, say, the way that Russia is exploiting the international system. But with respect to transactions in their own country, of course the police and the intelligence services want to be able to see everything in the – Mid-1990s, the Clinton administration uh, proposed a technological shift that ended up going under the label of the clipper chip that would have created FBI backdoors into basically all encryption. And they thought that it was just a basic tool of transparent good government um, in order for us to fight terrorists and fight child pornographers and fight money launderers. We need to be able to see everything that's happening and libertarians and civil libertarians and privacy advocates absolutely rightly as far as i'm concerned went into full revolt against the clipper chip and successfully blocked it um, that's a critically important voice to have that doesn't mean that everything that happens as a result of better privacy better encryption better non-state banking now cryptocurrencies that everything that happens is going to be a desirable, even a pro-liberty or pro-freedom development in the world. And we always need to be able to think about conflicts and trade-offs and costs. Hmm. Well, what do you think? I mean, a concrete example here, but like, what do you think about Reason Magazine and all these other sort of libertarian outfits that are just like you know, lining up to to cheerlead Julian Assange and saying that like, oh, it's so horrible that he's, you know, in trouble and what a fallen martyr like i mean what do you think about that uh i'd i'd be nervous about saying that i know that that's true um that is say i i follow the reason writers on twitter pretty faithfully and i read reason intermittently faithfully not as faithfully as i did when i was a teenager in my 20s <laughs> but but still um I I haven't noticed that kind of devotion coming from that quadrant. Um, th there are such libertarians. Uh, but well, that's why I always preface what I'm saying by saying that, like, these are the, the ones that are loud and are making a lot of noise. I, I know that there are I, – I have a lot of, you know, libertarian friends who are, who are quieter and 
tend to be more thoughtful <laughs> and tend to be have more power, like they have more money or more privilege or position, and so they tend to kind of know what's going on more. But like, but in terms of the really loud ones, I've heard a lot of loud people sort of saying this is horrible that what's happening. Assange is a, a martyr, you know, the kind of Glenn. Greenwald silliness. Yeah, you know? uh, and I, I'm just and, I'm, and, and I'm there's that, surprised that, that, by that. And that's that's not only a libertarian thing. That's something that has broadly divided a lot of progressives and the left. Um, there was a lot of early left and progressive and civil libertarian enthusiasm sure. about WikiLeaks. Sure. Um, Expose. The I was part of that. I'm of sad to say, the powerful yeah. expose the misdeeds of the American military complex. Uh, most of it, I think, has diminished as it's become clearer and clearer how close the collaboration between WikiLeaks and Russian intelligence was, um, and of course, also because the way that particular collaboration turned out brought the United States to the Trump presidency, and so. American progressives in particular are a lot less enthusiastic than they used to be. Uh, there are still the Glenn Greenwalds of the world out there. Uh, things are complicated. So do I think the United States government is an innocent, morally virtuous actor <laughs> uh, proceeding only out of a disinterested sense of justice – in its years-long campaign against the Sanjay. No, no. Um, no. <laughs> and nor do I think that the years-long campaign against him dating back into the second Obama administration was driven by a clear understanding of the entanglement of WikiLeaks and Russian intelligence at the time. I think that it was motivated by a desire to punish hackers releasing classified information or secret information or private information um, – which looked like a challenge to the American state. I can say that and also say, nonetheless, he should stand trial for rape. Nonetheless, some of the things that he did with respect to uh, hacking in the United States are legitimately crimes. Yeah. And I have no problem with him being prosecuted. Well, Edward Snowden has said, like, he's bullshit. Like, yeah. You know. Because look, look at all the things that he did to try and make sure that his release of information didn't hurt people. Snowden. Yeah. Yes. No, Snowden was a much more careful actor. He's like such an ethical, like, good man. Like, um, he really tried to, like, how can I do this in a way and, that hurts as few people as possible? And Assange's attitude was – it wasn't even just that he randomly dumped everything. He engaged in malicious targeting. Yeah. He was set out to make the world a worse place and successfully did so. Uh, now even really bad people aren't felons by virtue of being really bad people. And if he stands trial under the American charges, I think it will be important that there be a full accounting of the First Amendment concerns at stake um, – the press does have the right to release information that it was classified. Um, you don't have the right to be the hacker. You don't have the right to be the person violating your security clearance to release information. But the press does have the right to take what it has and run with it. And 
the institution of WikiLeaks is going to be a complicated institution to adjudicate the degree to which you're looking at a hacking organization versus a publishing organization, and it's going to be some of both. So I would want the trial to be careful and attentive, and I'm not saying uh, go hang him up from the first tree. <laughs> um, but he's not a hero. No. And uh, there's no reason to protect him from the rape charge just because there's this old hangover attitude that said, ah, oh, but he really stuck it to the man for a while there. Yeah. Well, I I heard, you know, from from the vast majority of my friends when that first came out, that this, you know, was all just like, you know, it was almost like kind of an Alex Jones. Those were like sort mm-hmm. of like, mm-hmm. you know, actors pretending to be parents of the like, you know, the kids that were killed. Like, like that those women are just sort of, Basically, this is a wag the dog kind of scenario. They're inventing this to take him down. Like, that was the... That's a good opportunity for a plug. There is a new book out by my undergraduate advisor, Nancy Rosenblum, and her co-author, Russell Muirhead, from Dartmouth, on the rise of conspiracy thinking in political discourse. Um, An excerpt of it was published in The Atlantic this week. Oh, wow. I didn't see that. And what is it? And what what is the 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 gist of the book? Like, what's? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the the book isn't in my hands yet. It's ordered. oh, you haven't read it yet. No, okay. no, I uh, was only able to skim the Atlantic material, uh, but I know on the basis of both of their writing over the years that this is going to be a worthwhile and interesting study. And uh, trying to take seriously what the intellectual habits are that have led to this kind of upsurge in imagining shadowy, more complicated, and more deliberate patterns behind what sometimes are just things going wrong. This is my thought, not theirs. Uh, But I said early on, there are kinds of intellectual and moral and political mistakes that you fall into when you believe that naturally things ought to go right, naturally my side ought to win, naturally things will be good. One of those mistakes is... When they go bad, you assume that there must be some really powerful, malicious actor rather than knowing, well, the world is a fallen place and sometimes bad stuff happens. Yeah. And I'm surrounded by people who disagree with me and sometimes the people who disagree with me win. And that's a thing that happens. And I, I think one of the sources of conspiracy theorizing, and I have no idea whether Rosenblum and Weirhead say anything like this, but I think one of the sources of conspiracy theorizing is this – imagination that the world naturally works out and so when the world doesn't work out the relationship the the explanation must be this nearly occult mysterious powerful thing yeah oh that's it's a very you know that's such a a a powerful kind of human impulse and it's you know i you know for for a while when i was younger this is a whole crazy story but like um, I volunteered for a number of years when I was younger at an, at an old folks home, like in Verdun for people that were kind of near, near death and stuff like that. And it had a really powerful effect on me in many ways, like in terms of shaping like my, my worldview and stuff like that. And part of the reason I had to do work there was community service for Trouble I'd caused, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> like, but uh, but it, it it was it was an interesting experience because like 
I would see how people who were dying of, of cancer and people who were dying of like, you know, Alzheimer's and all these various things and how their families would deal with it. And it was very interesting, like seeing how different worldviews sort of prepare you well or prepare you terribly to deal with like this, the suffering that comes with human life mm-hmm. and, and the loss and the fact that like, things fall apart and things like and there's some people who they could deal with I mean I'm not saying it wasn't painful but they could deal with like bad things happening and they could take it in stride because they had this idea that yeah things kind of suck a lot of the time and when they go well you should enjoy yes. that time and when Today, they the don't zombies didn't eat my brain <laughs> exactly <laughs> Like they can enjoy, and then there's other people that have this sort of view, uh, the kind of view that Freud is is sort of making fun of in his uh, his essay, uh, "The Future of an Illusion," where he talks about like like people who think that the world must be just, and so when it doesn't work out, they automatically imagine that there must have been some conspiracy, there must have been mm-hmm. some something that made this some diabolical like force uh, or cabal or something that made this like wrong right and uh and he he rightly observes that this is behind a lot of anti-semitism as well as a lot of like sort of conspiracy yes. thinking that there must be some people he's like actually the truth is so much more sad <laughs> the truth is that like most of the people in charge are clueless and this system doesn't work like that's the really sad thing right that it's like that uh but i i noticed that difference in spending time with these these elderly people that were like in their last sort of weeks and months and everything you know the ones who had a more kind of like well what we might call an augustinian view or a fatalistic view they could could deal with that time and their families could deal with that time with with grace and and a kind of a kind of sort of beauty, a sort of stoic kind of resignation that seemed to me so much more attractive and desirable than than the people who had, you know, and there are many ways you can get to that, as you well know. Uh, had a more kind of like view that that the world ought to be like this. And if it's not going that way, something's wrong. Some somebody set it up. Yeah, what you you just said that Freud described his more realistic assessment of the world as more sad. And early on, you talked about my book and my work as um, as, as as seeming dark. I think your work is like about three times more dark than Freud's, at least. <laughs> Like, I don't. It, I don't think that this assessment is a dark and sad thing. Uh, I compare it to waking up every morning and confronting the disappointment that the world isn't what I imagine it to be. It seems to me that adopting an attitude that understands the complexity, the partiality, the fallenness—to keep using that language. Uh, to understand the fallenness of the world is not a 
a sad or a crippling situation compared with the alternative of waking up in this same world that I wake up in and always not knowing how it came to be so horrible. Uh, the, the frustrated expectations, the disappointed expectations, the shaking a fist at heaven every day, saying, how dare the world not be what I imagined to be? That seems to me actually a much darker way to live than a way to understand the world has always conflict in it, always cost in it. The best we can do is the best we can do with it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. It's just, it's very hard for me to convince this, convince like the people that I interact with most of the time of this. Like, oh, sure. you know, one of, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny when you overhear conversations that your kids have about you. But uh, I have two sons, a 16-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I, I, I overheard a very, <laughs> very funny conversation with my older son. He's talking with some of uh, his friends. And um, they were about a year, year ago. And uh, they were talking about stuff. And like one of his friends said, yeah, your, your dad always seems like so happy. And so like, <laughs> he seems like, like, what is, and he said, oh yeah, he, he basically just, you know, he grew up in a, in a difficult situation and he, he just expects things to not go well, <laughs> like all the time. And so he's very, very happy when, he wakes up and our fridge is full and everything's going well. And like, he's like, wow, that's yes, awesome. That, like, uh, that, wow, that's so great. Like, but, uh, that, that, but that, that doesn't make it a sad way to live. No, it's uh, it's actually like every day being just like, wow, I'm amazed that this all still works. And like my family's alive and we have a home and we're living in a peaceful society. How, how awesome is that? <laughs> like, so, but no, I, I, I totally, I get what you're saying that like a, a tragic view, a tragic vision can actually perhaps, or to some people seemingly paradoxically, it can actually lead to a much more joyful experience of life. It, it can at least make the world more habitable to, to not have a tragic view and then take seriously the moral horror in the world. That seems to me paralyzing. Now, there are people who will just turn off their mental inputs and they will pretend that they live in a much better world than they live in. But then eventually it catches up with you. Eventually, yeah. more for Candide or anybody else. Yeah. 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 Um, and to circle back to the discussion of slavery and the themes of rationalism, pluralism, and freedom, the belief that you can do without trade-offs. The belief that, ah, I, I know the right way to make us free, and the right way to make us free is, in this case, just to radically limit the power of the central state. Um, and therefore, I'm going to monomaniacally proceed to radically limit the power of the central state because that's all freedom consists of, and it's really important that we be really, really free costlessly. That means you talk yourself into ignoring the cost. It means you talk yourself into not paying attention to the reality of slavery or the reality of Jim Crow and the Southern racial apartheid and white supremacy because you've told yourself a story that says as long as there's no federal legislation, 
there's liberty. So when there's no federal legislation governing race relations, there's liberty. And so the Civil Rights Act is nothing but a bad thing because the only thing that violates liberty is new federal legislation. Um, that's, that's one of the ways that people's minds go wrong when they don't believe in costs or believe in trade-offs. They will impose solutions that it's not that they reduce the costs of the world, it's just that they ignore them. And so they don't take them seriously and they don't engage in balancing to pay attention to what costs are lying where and what solutions yield what kinds of new problems. Yeah, there's... I- I, you probably know him online, but he's a, he's a friend of mine. Like, uh, but you gotta bring the mic up close to you. But uh, the Mike Geta, you've probably seen his name online. But he's a kind of a Montreal kind of really, really kind of like hardcore doctrinaire, uh, like libertarian. He's, he's also he's just a, a very funny, awesome guy, like personally. But uh, he is one of these people that like completely fits what you're talking about like he just takes like the hardcore libertarian line on everything and uh there's no trade-offs in his universe whatsoever and he has like and i know he's gonna be listening to this because he's read your book and he he loves uh he he loves your stuff but like and we're probably gonna get into an argument about this (laughs) but uh, but he there's no trade-offs at all like in his universe and the people that that he that he hangs with at Alsace every Friday night after this, like they all hang out there. Um, they just they have like a very hard line on all of these things. So just to give you an, an illustration, um, like one of the guys that that I that I've chilled with, like who's in this this libertarian kind of uh, group, and they you know they're, they're fascinating group of people, like the really really smart, interesting people, but. Um, they're so hardcore that like the fact that my son was going at my, my older son, my 16 year old was going into cadets and wanted to like train to be like a fighter pilot and stuff like that for the state. And that I was like really excited about this was horrible. Right. And the fact that I, uh, sort of, um, along with some of my friends sort of think that, the idea of mandatory military service like Israel has that I've said that I don't think that's necessarily like such a bad thing. And I can see some positive benefits associated with that. Just saying that (laughs) caused uh, a couple of these guys to like, they will not break bread with the hammer. (laughs) So like uh, that, it, it kind of fascinates me that sort of, that hard line, not realizing that, that we do live. Uh, and I actually, this this one particular guy I'm thinking of, I, I sent him your your sort of very nuanced and very interesting defensive identity politics and saying that, like, look, we, we live in a world of power and we have to somehow, we have to somehow, like, make this work in this world that we live in and it's not ideal and it's got all these trade-offs, but like, you know, maybe having, maybe having mandatory military service will be, will have like good benefits in terms of people's like civic identification on their. Yeah. Now, now, now I'm entirely off the. Train. <laughs> um, 
so you know, I, I, I am still plenty libertarian enough to say conscription is slavery. Um, <laughs> okay. It's coerced involuntary labor. It's coerced labor to take the population that will be fighting and dying in the event of war and also make them as it were financially pay for it. It's a way for the whole society to say, we're not willing to raise taxes high enough to pay the soldiers enough money that they would serve voluntarily. Um, we want to make sure that all these 18 to 20-year-olds serve as cheaply as possible. Uh, Did your parents ever, like, ask you to to go over? Oh, to Israel? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I've, um, no, 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 no one on the Jewish side of my family had any strong connections to Israel. Because Montreal, I mean, you probably have figured this out since living here and teaching here, but uh, Montreal has the high the jewish community here has the highest percentage of holocaust survivors of any it, it's bigger than new york it's oh i didn't they know have, that. it's it's very very big and so the the zionism and the connection to israel is here is more mm. intense even than you would find in like la or new york or anywhere it's really intense here so i had lots of friends that i grew up with I mean, I'm not Jewish, but like I had lots of friends that I grew up here who went and did their service and came back and grew up with hardcore like Zionist like parents and everything. And uh, it's it's a real kind of it's a it's a lived reality here. Right. So people have sure really strong feelings like for or against. But uh, but you're like, this is slavery. But, um, now, it could be the case that under conditions of certain kinds of emergency, slavery is a moral costs that a society is willing to pay. I'm not going to say that. It's like I, an existential threat. Yes. Yeah. Um, and The aliens are and, invading. And, and, yes. We need to conscript the young people and, to defend and, against and, the and aliens. I'm, I'm not going to run through particular cases and say whether I think such an argument would have worked there, but I could imagine such an argument that said, we take seriously the moral cost that we're paying. Um, but we have no choice. It's lifeboat ethics. What I can't endorse is any of the accounts that treat it as a positive good, treat it as being, well, an opportunity to serve, even though you're being coerced into serving, an opportunity to nation build or identity build at the cost of the liberty and the lives and limbs of the people you are conscripting. Um, Again, be willing to acknowledge a cost rather than to pretend that the thing you want to do is costless. That's not the moral right answer. And that leads to an ideological dressing up of you know, many things. It sometimes leads to an ideological dressing up of plantation slavery. But in this case and many others, it leads to an ideological dressing up of state power. It leads people to say this thing that the state is – ruling over me and forcing me to do somehow just is freedom. We've been talking mainly about ways that my libertarian friends refuse to acknowledge trade-offs and will insist that there's a way for us to be completely free and consequences be damned. But the Rousseauian democratic impulse behind this kind of republican theory of conscription that says, well, it just – it can't count as a cost to freedom that – the state comes and drags me out of my house and throws me onto the front line where I'm going to have to kill and potentially die. This was what the American Supreme Court effectively said when uh, 
conscription was challenged under the 13th Amendment, which prohibits involuntary servitude, the anti-slavery amendment, the Supreme Court just threw up its hands and said, we can't imagine how anyone could possibly think that the opportunity to engage in this important national project – well, opportunities aren't things that you are coerced <laughs> to take part in at risk of imprisonment. That's not an opportunity. That's an obligation. It's an obligation that's being imposed on people at coercive threat of violence. Um, and in this case, what you're being compelled to do is a morally extremely fraught thing. I'm being I'm insisting that you might die and might kill, which is a real cost. I'm demanding that you risk turning yourself into a killer. That's a cost to your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's worth doing, own up to how high the price is. But the the Republican Democratic Rousseauian impulse to say, as the Supreme Court said, we just can't imagine how anyone would think there's any moral price to pay here because it's freedom itself to go kill and die for the state. That's a horror. Yeah. I, you know, I'm 44 years old and I have never, I've heard many people articulate this argument to me um, wholeheartedly, you know, uh, I've never heard anybody use a lifeboat version of it. It was always the Rousseauian kind of like, mm-hmm. this is what a great opportunity to build solidarity within the, the community. And uh, this will sort of build civic virtue and this will be like all these these other things, right? Which I must confess that I'm I'm often convinced by, <laughs> but I recognize that it's not nearly as uh, morally defensible as the lifeboat argument. I've never heard anybody actually use even the most the most hardcore Zionists that I know. I've never heard them use. I've heard them use it, I can think of two, who've used it in, like, you know, articles in the National Post or the Jerusalem Post. Right? Like, they've used it publicly, but privately, they don't say that with a straight face. It's always more of the Rousseauian kind of, like, this will build, you know, like the, this will build virtue and a sense of solidarity, and this is good. Yeah, in, in in 2019, it would be very hard to say with a straight face that Israel is in that kind of emergency condition. Um could I imagine someone saying with a straight face in 48, 67, 73? Yes. Um, yeah. That's not me endorsing it, but it's me saying I could imagine someone in good faith. You could say it with a straight face yes. and it would be like a, yes. a serious argument, yes. right? Like so, yeah, it's not, it's not as much. It's not as much anymore. But I, I don't think there's been any time since 79 and probably not any time since 73 when it was credible. Yeah. I know that our listeners will will sort of – you know, lambast me if I don't like if I don't it, at all ask you about what you think about what's going on in Quebec right now with the you know religious symbols and everything because this is just I mean this is right up your alley I mean this is right up your alley so w- what do you think about what's going on with the the proposed you know the the law that will sort of say that somebody who's a, a prosecutor a judge a teacher prof police officer and anybody who sort of represents the state cannot have visible religious symbols. What, what do you think about this? By which we mean really Jewish and Muslim religious symbols because the nice little cross necklace is still going to pass muster. Uh, I don't even think we mean – I think Jews are just collateral damage. 
I think this is basically about I think kind of Muslims. I think there are parts of the coalition for whom Jews aren't collateral damage. Uh, perhaps, but when I've asked, you know, when in 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 private, in French, in our neighborhood, uh, with people who are hard crit, it's not Jews. They're, the Jews are collateral damage because we can't just say, you know, what we want to say. So we have to like make this a blanket Though, thing. Um, I mean, there there really are moments in even in Montreal life where the public display of Judaism becomes controversial. Oh, uh, sure, with the Hasidim, yeah, yeah. Uh, or with with putting up an aruv around a neighborhood, the string that's tied around poles to mark out a space as being relevantly a Sabbath protected space within which people can move around. Um, you get people who are just outraged that there's a piece of string that they can see that other people impute religious meaning to and who will treat the existence of the Aruv as if it's the introduction of theocracy. The Aruv makes no claim whatsoever about the behavior of Gentiles. Um, it does not restrict the movement of any Gentile. It is not a rope. It is not a gate. It is a piece of string tied above eye level. Uh, but the visible evidence of somebody else's religion becomes so offensive that it creates very serious neighborhood level conflicts. Uh, I don't think that that's absent. Yeah, my, my uncle and aunt lived like in a big house in Utrecht facing Utrecht Park, and like the stuff that like I hear from them and their neighbors, they they yeah, they were like really sketched out about this stuff that had nothing to do with them. It's weird. Yep, that's right. And I, I absolutely think that Muslims are the heart of who is targeted by this now ongoing well over a decade uh, political struggle, though, of course, the case that triggered the reaction in Quebec and Canadian politics in the first place was a Sikh case um, about carrying a ceremonial dagger. Uh, so it, it's not only and always about Islam, even though it's more than any single other thing about targeting Islam. Uh, so the version of laicite, the understanding of public secularism that Quebec political culture imported in a certain way from French political culture and French Republican political culture has also now had decades worth of this kind of fight going. Um, I, I think it's deeply morally politically mistaken. It's the application of it often seems to me like a kind of uh, cultural memory about nuns. We in Quebec who fought the quiet revolution, we fought so hard to get nuns out of the schools or to get ourselves out of the classrooms that the nuns taught. Um, and now you're proposing to undo the quiet revolution by – but the analogy falls apart so fast. The way in which people were rebelling against Catholic education in the Quiet Revolution was about it being a systematic state-level entanglement between the Quebec government and the Catholic educational system. Um, the nun there wasn't just a person expressing her religious identity. She was the symbol of this hybrid religious and state power. Yeah. that the Quiet Revolution really desirably overthrew. The member of a religious minority who 
goes and teaches a class in a yarmulke or a headscarf, no one can look at that and say, aha, what I'm seeing here is the evidence that the Quebec government is really an Islamic theocracy or a Jewish theocracy. No one actually believes that. There, there is a kind of just allergy, I'm convinced, in the political culture that has stuck Absolutely. around. Absolutely. That, that genuinely does say, well, we got our freedom by getting the religious figure out of the head of the classroom. But the disanalogies between that person as the symbol of the institutional power of church and state unified and that person as a religious believer who holds a job is just vast. I, I'm so glad you get that because like as a as a you know a native born like Quebecer, like I really feel like a lot of people, even people who teach it like McGill or Concordia, like don't get that. Like they just don't get that. They they think it's all Islamophobia and it's all kind of like center and like you know you're absolutely right. Like for a lot of people, it's, it's they remember what it was like to have this this sort of really unholy alliance between church and state. And you know, Duplessis was just like a that's right, horrible, horrible person. And he really kind and of and if like, you're going to be allergic to anything, being allergic to the Duplessis regime is a good thing. Yeah, to be allergic yeah, to. yeah. And like uh, they don't realize that like that's for a lot of people that's what it is, you know. And uh, and they just. They just don't – they want there to be like a strict separation. But, you know, and it's weird how much I've internalized this. Like like I remember um, very, very clearly when I was a teenager and I was actually like a very devout Pentecostal <laughs> as a teenager and I was going to church like, you know, many times a week. And even though I was like a devout, I had internalized – you know, I, I only realize this now in retrospect. But like I had internalized this kind of – idea that we absolutely have to have like a secular society so there was this, this one um experience where my i was in grade grade nine and my teacher who is my geography teacher who he was like this unbelievably charismatic teacher like everybody loved him and he's a really really good teacher and we all really hung on his every word and there was this one point where it was it was like uh, just before easter weekend and he said to us, he said, like, look, um, you know, I recognize some of you don't go to church sometimes, but, uh, you know, this Sunday, put on your best clothes and, you know, get yourself to a church. Doesn't matter which one it is. Just get to a church because, you know, he died for your sins. And I remember just, like, my heart just sunk mm -hmm. like i i literally felt like my teacher just dropped his pants and like whipped his dick out like i was just like oh my i was so completely shocked and so disappointed i never respected him again like ever uh for the whole i i was disgusted i i just knew like a taboo boundary has been crossed yes you are not supposed to fucking do that like at, and I knew that, right? And I like, I actually, I was so upset about it. Like, uh, I, I remember I told my mom about it. <laughs> and then, you know, perhaps it might sound funny to people, but I told my pastor about it. And my pastor mm -hmm. was like, my pastor at Trinity Pentecostal Church, uh, Pastor Ken Bombay, a third generation Pentecostal preacher in Canada who his deepest wish was to die in the pulpit preaching. <laughs> Uh, when I told him about what my what my teacher uh, had said, who I hope I I didn't mention, like like 
uh, but his name, but his response was immediately, um, yeah, every time church and state have been combined, it has corrupted both the church and the state. And so we are both better off um, keeping those things just very, very much discount. And he said, so that guy, you know, maybe he felt like what he was doing was, was, you know, for, for God, but, uh, you know, wasn't the Holy Spirit that moved in there. So, uh, that was like, not, not a good thing at all. Like, it's a, it's a good dissenting Protestant answer. Um, Protestantism has a different tradition of thinking about state power than Catholicism and the the smaller dissenting Protestant churches like uh, Pentecostal church uh, is it's absolutely what you would expect from a Pentecostal preacher. I think one of the sources that Quebec and France share in their in the problem that has arisen about their inability to come to terms with the idea of just liberal freedom of religion is precisely a, a leftover Catholic attitude about the unity of church and state. Uh, and so if you're so convinced that it's the normal course of events, if people are religious, for church and state to be unified, then the only way that you can imagine being free from religious domination is to be just free from the existence of religion. Uh, and the the backlash to Catholic power, which in France was part of the story of both the French Revolution and then a great deal of politics of the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, and Quebec was part of the story of the, French Revo of the Quebec Revolution and its aftermath, Quiet revolution, mm -hmm. quiet revolution in its aftermath. That's that's something I think that those of us from Protestant cultures have a harder time wrapping our heads around. Uh, and I do understand why it is that if you've grown up in a Catholic social milieu and you saw that unity of church and state power, that it's hard for you to fully believe and fully imagine that these other people who have religions don't intend to use the state the way that the priest priestly class did in the bad old days of Duplessis or Franco or 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 um, that's not ultimately an excuse for getting it so badly wrong. It's certainly not an excuse for the level of rank hypocrisy that afflicts some of the debate in Quebec. Where, after all, there is the Duplessis crucifix hanging behind the speaker's chair in the National Assembly. Anyone who refuses to entertain taking that down and then tells the Bill 21 story about the importance for a free society of being free from the public visible display of religious power, I – I'm not ultimately going to take seriously and unfortunately that's the whole political class in Quebec. The Bouchard-Taylor Commission recommended some degree of limitation on the display of religious signs for some public employees, something that was much narrower than Bill 21. I think it was restricted to police prosecutors, judges and maybe prison guards but not teachers. Um, so they, the Bouchard-Taylor Commission report – recommended that degree of limitation on religious signs worn by state officials. 
paired with taking down Duplessis' crucifix. What happened? Well, what happened was the day that the Bouchard-Taylor Commission report was issued, um, a unanimous resolution was passed through the National Assembly that said, of course, we are never taking that down. (laughs) So that just means that everything that follows that invokes the authority of the Bouchard-Taylor Commission that says, aha, they told us that it was okay. They told us it was the right thing to do. Well, no, they prescribed a set of reforms that were meant to limit the religious character of the state and show that they really meant it, to show that this was not targeting Muslims, that the Catholic and post-Catholic majority was also willing to bear some of the cost of secularizing the public sphere. It's not going to happen, and the whole (laughs) political class in Quebec is unified around. So it means that no matter how morally generous a story I'm willing to tell, about the post-Quiet Revolution generations and about the revolt against Duplessis and all the rest to say, yes, I kind of understand the sources of it. I I don't understand that level of hypocrisy and I think that if you're taking seriously your post-Quiet Revolution revolt against Duplessis, the crucifix comes down first Yeah. before you start targeting minority religions. Well, that's what our mayor said, right? Like Verli Plant, she's, she's like – we took down, you know, the we took down the crucifix in the in city hall in Montreal, and like we, like if you want to actually talk about secularism and getting all these symbols out, then we should do mm-hmm. the same thing, right? So, but it it is funny that the contrast. Like I was, I saw an interview with uh, Yuval Noah Harari in in Israel, and he said like, yeah, well, people just have different they were asking about these these kinds of questions and he said well people have different um hang-ups about different religions like he said like i'm you know openly gay and married to like a dude in israel and we have a conservative government like i know there's people that live in my in my society who think that my my way of life is is wrong but i don't feel in any way under threat from them because that's just not part of our political culture. That's not part of our. You don't uh, necessarily force other people like to live the way that you're living. But he said, I understand if people who come from like a different background with a nif- different kind of baggage, they might be really fearful of religious conservatives because where they come from, religious conservatives have a tendency to like impose their will on the body politic, right? So. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, like the Quiet Revolution happened, like you know, like half a century ago. Like at a certain point, like get over it. It's not like it becomes a less and less of a convincing argument for doing. I mean, I, I have this yeah, issue, and, I have this and, and at best, I don't think it's an argument. I think it's just an explanation. Yes, and no, it's not an argument. And 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 it's worth having the explanation. It's worth understanding that there's one impulse at work here that is not a bigoted impulse. Um, but that doesn't amount <laughs> to an argument that justifies the hypocritical combination of policies that are being proposed. Yeah, well, it's the same thing with Islamophobia. Like, I um, there's, I would say that I encounter two main strands of Islamophobia, like in Quebec. Um, I encounter one strand, which are which is just straight up like 
like ignorance. It's like people who are reading way too much like Journal de Montréal or they're reading way too much like Ezra Levant, like Rebel Media or bullshit. Like they're reading like you know Breitbart Canadian versions of Breitbart news, basically. The threshold for too much of those things is yeah. pretty low. <laughs> yeah, but they're they have no actual lived experience of traveling in in muslim majority nations or living with like muslim neighbors they it's just purely it, it's like somebody being anti-semitic in like rural poland mm-hmm. where the jews are all mm-hmm. gone um like you don't know what the fuck you're talking about it's just pure imagination there's that that strand of islamophobia and i think like it's fairly easy to just sort of discount that and to sort of challenge that on this is ignorant and you don't know what you're talking about. But there's another strand of Islamophobia, which is actually quite common in Montreal. It's quite common in Toronto. It's extremely common in LA, uh, quite common in New York. Um, I've encountered it. Yeah. In like mainly, mostly in those four cities, but it's in other places as well. And this is an Islamophobia that is uh, comes from people who are fairly recent immigrants to Canada, the United States, who were members of Christian and Jewish minorities or other kinds of minorities from Muslim majority nations, primarily in, in North Africa and Middle East and stuff like that. So, like, uh, kind of the classic case of this is Gad Saad, that guy, like. Uh, if, He's uh, kind of teaches in the Molson School of Business at Concordia University. Mm-hmm. He's, he's uh, got a really big presence online, the Gadfather and stuff like that. And he, like Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, he was a member of the Jewish minority in Lebanon. Taleb was a member of the Greek Orthodox community that uh, basically run out of of Lebanon like during the Civil War and... Uh, you know, most of, you know, the stories that they both have are really, really horrible of, like, the things that happened. I mean, like, you know, one story that, like, springs to mind is um, Gad Sad. His brother was a really amazing wrestler, and he was, like, the top wrestler in his class in all of Lebanon. And he was supposed to go to, like, the, the next level, which was, I can't remember, it was the Olympic team or... It was like some international competition, and they basically came to him and said, we don't like the optics of a Jew representing us, and uh, if you accept this offer, you know, basically, like, we're going to kill you, or we're going to do something really... And so he backed, backed out, and they eventually, like, had to leave. They had, like, their bank accounts and businesses, like like seized and they had like they lost like you know almost everything and they got out of there so there's a strand of islamophobia that i get from students and friends who've come from that experience uh and by the way uh there was an article in the atlantic i think david from actually wrote it which was like some of the most virulently like just like make your stomach churn kind of islamophobic um kind of things on YouTube and on the internet, if you look at who created them, they're they're largely kind of Americans 
who are like Coptic Christians or like you know Copts. They're they're mm-hmm. people who are recent immigrants from these places who've had a really bad experience, and so I feel like it's really important to. I mean, they're both wrong, but I think it's it's important to sort of disentangle like Islamophobia that's a function of ignorance and Islamophobia that's a function of like like your bad experience of a particular place, which you are now extrapolating to, you know, like 1.6 billion people. Like, right. Um, and those are, those are different things, right? I mean, what do you think is going on primarily in Quebec with Quebec's Islamophobia? A or B? I mean, the, the answer just has to be A. Um, the, the off-island political power, the way that the election system is gerrymandered to disadvantage um, non-Francophone native ridings means that the way that you win an election on identity issues, not by appealing to Montreal constituencies, um, and it's consistently very clear that within Montreal, uh, there's really widespread antipathy toward Bill 21 yes. and its ancestors, um, enough so that when the PQ's version was under consideration, uh, the then Montreal administration tried to say, well, Montreal should get an urban self-government exemption the way that Jewish General Hospital as a hospital is going to get an exemption, exemption the way that McGill was uh, hoping to get an exemption. Um, once things hit that past, then the PQ said, right, we're rethinking this exemption business because exempting Montreal is clearly not in the cards. But it's understood that the politically popular thing to do in Montreal is to be against these bans, not to be for them. It's perfectly possible, I believe you, that um, you're running into anti-Islamic attitudes on the part of some Montreal more recent immigrant populations. That's not where the political energy is coming from. That's not the political power behind the PQ or the CAQ's version of this. Yeah. No, I, I think you're. I think you're entirely right. I just wish more people were clear on that. You know, because like I, I remember when you know the last time around when PQ was trying to put this through with putting Marois and um, Daniel Weinstock came and he was talking at different places and he came and spoke at, at where I teach at John Abbott College and like yeah you know, the room was like big and our room was packed with people and they you know from many many different backgrounds and different political persuasions and they all were united in this idea that this is terrible you know and this is you know it was uh Everything from Muslim students who wear the hijab to like uh, very kind of like hardcore atheist students that were like holding Mm -hmm. their copy of like God is not great and like, you know, Sam Harris and like Dawkins. They were all like they were all kind of united that this is a really bad thing. What is kind of interesting to me at this point is that I don't see the same unity and I don't know what has changed. Like, I, I, a lot of those sort of, like, new atheist kind of fiery students who were, you know, the big Sam Harris fans and stuff like that, and Christopher Hitchens fans, they're not in the meeting now. They're sort of, um, they seem 
you know, obviously I'm, I'm generalizing, but they, they, they seem to have decided that, yeah, this is kind of ugly, but it's necessary. And I, I don't know what has changed. I, I, I don't have any answer for that. It, it seems to me that the opposition is just less energized generally now than was the case under Marois. Partly, I think that might be because the CAQ has a majority and so uh, there doesn't seem to be the same possibility of defeating it, whereas Marwa's government was a minority government and she didn't have the votes by herself to put it through. So there was so – it seemed like more of a point. Um, maybe it's fatigue, the fatigue that happens to say a lot of people fought really hard, including ultimately fighting an election and um, that wasn't that long ago. I don't know. I, I've I've found it surprising how much less fire yeah. there seems yeah. to be. Um, like it there's, there's, like people there's were resignation all behind this, like uh, but, behind going against this but, before, and but, now a lot of people are laying, laying but, down on, on but, the tracks. But what I what I'm perceiving is resignation, not people changing sides, not endorsement, just um, an acknowledgement that. It's going to happen. It's going to happen very fast. The PQ held six months worth of hearings, maybe not six months, but at least a full winter and some of the spring worth of hearings. Um, the hearings were terrible in a variety of ways. They were op- open mic invitations. Yeah, like YouTube uh, comments made but, you know public. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, but but the hearings meant that you had this constant state of engagement in public argument. The CAQ isn't having. Four months of public hearings, they're just saying, right, pretty soon now that we're going to take an afternoon and pass this. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that has something to do with the diminished energy too. But Post-apocalyptic hellscape. <laughs> but, but to be targeted together is an important experience. So you said you hear Islamophobia from, among others – Jewish refugees from majority Muslim countries who understand that they were persecuted as Jews or expelled as Jewish populations. Uh, Even if you're carrying around deep, deep Islamophobic, generalized, stereotyping resentment against the majority Muslim country from which you were expelled, you're not going to sign up for the ban on yarmulkes being worn by school teachers. Um, Precisely because the bill genuinely isn't narrowly targeted against Muslims and Mm -hmm. because very clearly Jews are caught up in it, uh, that's going to be a moment for Jews to understand that they share an interest here with Muslims. In the U.S., where I believe to this day a majority of Arab Americans are not Muslims because the Christian, especially Lebanese diaspora was so large – there wasn't a great deal of tension between Christian Arab Americans and Muslim Arab, Arab Americans. But post 9-11, it's gone from not a lot of tension to a very strong sense of solidarity and unity because being confronted with just a rising tide of anti-Arab bigotry. Yes, you got some Arab Christians saying, no, no, trust us. We hate Muslims as much as you do. <laughs> but when it turned out that there was just a reaction that said, no, no, you're an Arab. When you're treated as being part of the targeted group, that builds some solidarity with the targeted group. And so I think uh, in the U.S., 
it, you probably wouldn't find large Arab populations where the experience of being a non-Muslim Arab was turning you against Islam. Coptic Christians, I'm very willing to believe, are a different case, but Coptic Christians aren't nearly as large a population in the U.S. as Christian Lebanese diaspora. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, because this is one of, you know, the many really interesting positions that you take. Uh, you have a a libertarian, well, I, I don't want to call it a libertarian. I'll call it a, a, a sort of a, a Jacob. <laughs> but you have a defense of identity politics, which is quite fascinating. Could you sort of, what what is your sort of, because a lot of the guests that we've had, um, you know, we've had, you know, over 50 guests now, but uh, but a lot of them have been pretty harsh on identity politics and seeing this as like, you know, predominantly kind of something that doesn't add a great deal to our political culture and to our, but you, you've sort of defended it. Can you, so what is your, your sort of defense of identity politics? So it arises out of what we were just talking about. Um, the reality is that State power, among other sources of injustice, but very much state power, uh, is used in targeted and discriminatory ways. And the populations who are targeted become aware of themselves, if they weren't already, as being a shared target of unfreedom, of oppression, of injustice. And they mobilize. And the sense of solidaristic commitment to being the group that's being targeted, the group that's being put upon, is a powerful source of political energy. The, uh, there's a very kind of classroom attitude towards some of the disdain for identity politics that says, well, I should just be speaking up for the things that I think are right and it shouldn't matter who I am and I will pick the issues that I'm right about and uh, – and a reluctance to think of oneself as a member of a team. This is also a part of the academic disdain often for political parties. Uh, but that's not what the motivational power for large-scale political action looks like. And so an example that's near and dear to my heart, libertarians have been against the drug war for as long as there have been libertarians and a drug war. It's really one of the foundational equipments of libertarianism as an organized political uh, identity. The drug war was one of – not the chief Nixon policy but one of the Nixon policies that triggered the organization of the Libertarian Party, for example. Um, and libertarians went along saying, aha, of course, I'm against the drug war because I'm a libertarian. And it got no traction and it got no uptake. And it was in a lot of ways a very dry, abstract kind of opposition. The drug war has engendered a huge increase in the power and abusiveness of the American prison and carceral system and American policing. And that policing is racially targeted. Police power is racially targeted. Now there's a lot more police power than there used to be and the degree of violence and abuse visited upon black and Hispanic populations is very dramatic. And Black Lives Matter was a response to that. Uh, 
was a response to police violence, police abuse, which then grew into a diagnosis and an indictment of the power and abusiveness of the police and carceral and prison systems in the United States. I've been a libertarian since 1985, 1986, and I went through years and years and years in which talking about the drug war was, oh, that's one of those weird things that you libertarians do, ha, 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 ha. Uh, it's not a very serious thing. That's just you taking those principles way too seriously, ha, ha, ha. Black Lives Matter put the power of the police, the abusiveness of the police and carceral system, and the understanding about what had changed in the American legal regime to make the U.S. the country that imprisons the most people in the world by orders of magnitude, um, turned the question about why there's such a presence of police power in minority neighborhoods in the U.S. to make those front and center political issues. That's identity politics. People organized not around the fact that people were being killed by police, but around the fact that black people were being killed by police. Understanding that what they were experiencing was a racialized injustice, a racialized kind of oppression. That doesn't mean there aren't white people who are killed by police. But it means the phenomenon of policing in the United States is tied up with the way that state power treats especially African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans, and people responded to it, getting the emotional power to get out in the streets, to organize, to vote, to protest, a kind of emotional power that the classroom libertarian saying, of course, people should be free to do what they wish to with their body. And so as a fourth consequence of that, of course, I disapprove of the increase in police power that that libertarianism had never engendered that kind of response. Uh, this is a moment in which knowing that your identity group was being targeted, experiencing the injustice and the oppression, provides the emotional energy that is part of how politics works. And of course it's part of how politics works and there was identity politics before that. A great deal of the political power in – country like the United States comes from, well, white identity politics, one of the most powerful forces in the whole history of American politics over and over and over again. What, after all, shaped the distinctiveness of the American South? What shaped the power of the Democratic Party when the South was the solid white South? Uh, what shaped Jim Crow? White identity politics, organizing around this fact you eventually get people rendering that whiteness invisible and saying, no, no, that was just politics. Now, when black people are speaking up as black people, that's identity politics. Uh, no, it was identity politics all along. <laughs> uh, if we're going to take seriously limits on majoritarian power or centralized state power or abusive and violent state power, then the people who are victimized by it will have to be able to draw on the emotional wellspring of energy that comes from knowing that you're being targeted, knowing you're part of the targeted group, to get out there and organize and fight, to do something other than write the occasional disdainful letter to the editor. Um, that doesn't mean that all identity politics is choosing rightly. Uh, doesn't mean that every instance of identity politics fails to uh, – 
properly respects boundaries around the difference between protecting freedom and aggressively asserting a group interest to dominate others. It doesn't. But identity politics is one of the motive engines of political life. And that's going to include the kind of political organization of resistance against abuse and oppression. Yeah, there's that. I, I mean, it's been a long time since I read it, but there's a wonderful article, a very long article by this um, academic. He was at the end of his career, James Hudson, and he wrote it like at the end of his career, and it was called. Um, came out in like the 1980s. It's called The Experiential Origins of Northern Anti-Slavery Sentiment. And it's just, I I remember reading it and just being like, like it was just a very, 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 very powerful um, article. And he he went through all these prominent anti-slavery activists from the 19th century and he basically demonstrated, he totally made me think of this when you were talking, like, he demonstrated that these people did not come to their anti-slavery position from an abstract, as you put it, like, sort of a classroom libertarian. Like, they didn't come to it from a, a sort of an abstract enlightenment, like, oh, we believe in the, like, freedom of the individual, and so therefore, you know, ergo, like, slavery is wrong. He showed out all of these major figures, and he just goes one after another, one after another, and you're just like, oh, my God. Like, all of these people, he went to their letters and diaries and their personal history, and he found that, like, all of these people who were, like, very, very prominent anti-slavery activists had had some very visceral personal experience with the institution of slavery. Like, either Mm -hmm. they had, like, from Theodore Dwight Weld who had watched a slave beaten to death in front of him in Boston when he was, like, a teenager. Like, and it was, like, the most horrifying thing he had ever seen in his life. And he remembered it intensely. He remembered the smell of it and the look of it, like, 60 years later. Like, he remembered it perfectly in his 70s and 80s. Like, uh, he... They had had some sort of experience. Either they were escaped slaves or they were friends with escaped slaves, or they had somehow seen the intense brutality mm-hmm. of this. And so he said, you know, we have this idea that people who are motivated, powerfully motivated to push for for rights and for a particular group, that somehow they they do it because of the embrace of abstract principles. And he said, you know, maybe that's sometimes the case, but it looks like in practice, people who come to something from abstract principles, they don't have a lot of, as you would put it, a lot of emotional energy behind it. That's right. And so they don't actually really do that much. And they don't, they're not, they don't put that much on the line. But he goes, all these like hardcore activists who were willing to die for this shit, like they were really, really intense, like in their anti, their opposition to slavery. They usually had some direct emotional response, mm-hmm. like experience of this, right? Which which shaped them. So, if you're going to say, as some of our our guests have said on this podcast, that um, identity politics are disqualified because it's special pleading, because you know 
Well, actually, most of what makes people actually do things is some form of special pleading. That's right. Um, to to have the certainty of the typically white, typically male, centrist intellectual says, well, I'm in favor of good policies and I'm against bad policies and I uh, I don't sign on for teams and I just announce principles. Uh, look, I'm demographically that guy. And and I'm an academic and <laughs> an abstract. More than you even. <laughs> I'm an abstract thinker, and I like principles, and I like being able to write out long, complicated accounts of how long and complicated things are. It's a mistake to generalize from one's own sensibility about that to what makes the political world run. Uh, again, there's there's a similarity to the way that uh, intellectuals have traditionally thought about political parties. Um, to say, well, I, I choose the man, not the candidate, and I am in favor of good policies and against bad policies, and I will think for myself every time. And there are people for whom that's true. But they're a very, very, very strange breed of people in population <laughs> terms. Most people who are independents who refuse to join political parties, they are the lowest information voters. They know almost nothing about politics. And they are very unlikely to participate in politics. Okay. They are actually very often the most low-information voters. That, that's right. And therefore, the, the really high-information, self-identified independents who tend to be professors or people who write op-eds for a living or something like that, when they generalize from themselves to the world, they tend to think of partisans as being the bad guys and independents as being – well, like themselves, but that's not who independents really are as a voting block. And the partisans are doing a great deal of the heavy lifting in making ongoing democratic contestation possible and viable. And they've got to do it. The partisans have to do it with a degree of emotional commitment. Uh, it's not in anyone's rational self-interest to go spend a lot of time volunteering to go door to door. It's not in people's rational self-interest to volunteer for political campaigns. But people need to do that kind of thing by the tens or hundreds of thousands for electoral democracy to be a viable thing. The independents aren't the ones pulling their weight. Uh, and so I'd say of partisanship as of identity politics, you know, thank goodness the world doesn't actually look like the cold-blooded intellectual light types whom I'm more comfortable talking to because we aren't a sound foundation for a political system. Yeah. And the thing is, is our view, you know, I don't want to be too melodramatic here, but like our view has very often created some of the, the totalitarian kind of nightmares because, you know, if you believe, and, and this is tends to be, you find this in a lot of liberal circles, if you believe that, you know, in the Socratic tradition that that all kind of evil in the world and, and stuff you don't like is a function of ignorance, ignorance, right? And so if people were just more educated and they knew more, right, then somehow we would all be like singing around the campfire, kumbaya, my lord. Like we'd all be like getting along and getting great, right? And that's actually like not – that's usually not true, right? I, I love like, you know, like I, I know you – but like I love Nassim Nicholas Taleb's line where he says, uh, "If my detractors knew me more, they would hate me more." 
<laughs> like, like his point is that like when you feel an animosity towards somebody, it's not always a function of ignorance. And if if I could just get you two in a room together, you know, for a couple hours, right. it'd be like a rom com. You'd be like best friends by the end. He's like, no. Very often, your feeling of animosity towards somebody is a true assessment of of a difference, mm-hmm. of a difference of opinion, and you're recognizing. You're recognizing that the, that the two of you don't see eye to eye on certain things, and you have different visions. And like, it's not always just a function of some ignorance and, and prejudice. That, um, and so I think what is you know part of what I liked about your your book on, on this is like, I think it's good that we think really long and hard about how we're going to like deal with differences being a permanent feature of the political landscape. That there's going to be things that we're never, ever going to see eye on. How do we live in peace with people that are never going to agree with us? Mm-hmm. And, like, that's that's that to me is, like, a much more powerful question to ask rather than, like, can we just somehow hold hands and drop ecstasy together and somehow, like, by the end of the night, we're all going to, like, yeah, fuck, he's a great guy. Hitler, this guy is so cool, actually. Let me rub your mustache. Like, 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 <laughs> like. The, that, that that went someplace odd there. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually stealing a comedy bit off of like Dennis Leary, but uh, he's talking about like the the kind of utopianism that some druggies engage in. Like, I see. You think that somehow like you could make anybody you know get along and like right. So I think recognizing difference and difference difference of ideas, difference of interests, difference of like is actually a really good first step towards truly living in peace but a lot of people are, are not are not happy about that first step it's like no it, definitely not you know and i i see this just you know like i see this not just in the body politic i even see this just in relationships like i was on the bus today and i was like trying to like read the rest of your book on my kindle on my phone <laughs> and there was a couple on the, on the bus and they were arguing and it was it was very funny you know overhearing their argument but like uh she was stating like sort of what her view on something was and her boyfriend was was disagreeing with her and she said i don't think you're listening to me yeah and 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 it was and so like sort of she restated it Again, you know, like the stereotypical kind of American tourist in Europe. If I say it louder, a little louder, yeah, you'll suddenly understand English. When in fact, the problem is not that you're deaf; it's that you don't speak English. But she restated it like again, and they they went through this, and they're just getting kind of louder and more kind of like in this their argument on the four or five bus, and uh, and it was very clear to me that they basically had a a different understanding of like what listening might entail. Like he was saying, I und- I totally hear what you're saying. I, I just, just still don't agree I with it. I don't agree with it. And for her, she clearly had like this this sort of idea that like if you really heard what I was saying, you would agree with me. <laughs> yes. And I feel like a huge percentage of my progressive friends and some of my liberal friends Basically, that is their political outlook. If you actually could walk in my moccasins for like a mile, you would agree with me. And it doesn't occur to them that like I might 
walk in your moccasins for a mile and not agree with you. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll get slogans like "Our voices aren't being heard," uh, and sometimes our voices are being heard and we lost. <laughs> sometimes there were more of the other people uh, who think something different than what we think. Uh, one one last thing on the relationship of all of this to libertarianism. One of the things that baffles me about the propensity of a lot of my libertarian friends toward this kind of idealization, often through social contract moments that say, well, if we stipulate the political world where everybody has the correct view, then they would create a government that had the following shape uh, such that you really do imagine that everyone would in that moment have my politics – We libertarians are a small, unpopular fringe movement wherever we go. I don't know how people don't get used to that and learn the lesson from it. Uh, why it is that the theoretical imagination still, still goes to, uh, well, what would it be like if everybody agreed with me and we all got together and write a constitution? Why should you think that's what politics is like? Why should you think the natural course of events is that you would win unanimity when you can't win 10% of any given population? Um, that's not a reason to abandon one's view. No. But to say, I hold my view and my view loses and that's not a violation of some deep underlying political order we don't solve the fact that I lost an election by trying to make me win the Constitutional Convention. We don't lose, use the fact that I lost the Constitutional Convention to try to make me go back and win the social contract. You say, people are going to go on disagreeing and the thing that I think is right will often lose. That's what it's like. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that is – such a, a dark and tragic <laughs> no, way to wait no, no, it, it means you don't it shake your beautiful. fist at the sky. It can be beautiful. <laughs> so I, I always like to ask people this at the end. Like, what are you working on? You know, because this book that I just finished of yours, it came out in 2015, which means you probably were done with it in 2013 or, you know, and went through revisions and stuff like that. So it's, it's probably pretty far from what you're interested in now. So what are you working on now? Like, what is your... Now, I mean, the funny thing is we've we've talked relatively little about the stuff in Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom that actually takes up most of the pages. Um, that's a book about associations and group life and the relationship of group life to freedom. And it's also a book about uh, early modern political theory and about Montesquieu and Tocqueville. Uh, what I'm working on now is much more the stuff that we've actually been talking about. The next book will be called Justice in Babylon – where Babylon stands as it did for Augustine uh, for the world that we share together with people with whom we don't morally agree. For Augustine, the peace of Babylon is the peace that the believing Christian who is a member of the city of God who ultimately is destined for heaven, it's the peace that they share with the damned because the saved and the damned are all mixed together here on earth in a really existing political society like Rome or Babylon. So even, even the most committed, most saved Christian has reason to engage in 
normal politics, understanding that you don't share your deepest moral commitments with the people with whom you do share this circumstance. We are all subject to the same authority. We're all struggling in the same way with the fact of disagreement. So I, I take the Babylon metaphor out of the book of Jeremiah and out of Augustine uh, as a way to think about living together in politics while recognizing that the world has fallen, that it's characterized by conflict and power and disagreement, and we still have reason to try to do our best in it. Neither in Jeremiah nor in Augustine is it meant to be a recommendation for moral despair. It's a recommendation to understand what you're looking at in the political world and to say, right, we're trying to make morally the best of this complicatedly bad and fallen and conflictual situation, not trying to wish it away and not giving in to the temptation of despair when I wish away at it really hard and it doesn't go away. When you're done wishing away at it, well, the politics is still there and we still have the same need to try to make it better rather than worse that we had before you indulged yourself. That sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> when is it going to be when is it going to be that, done or You know enough academics to know that's not a polite <laughs> question. I mean, well, basically are you is this like sort of if you got like a chapter or two done, if you got half done, where are you like uh, there are several pieces building toward the project that have been published. Okay, so um, like sort of articles that are, will be morphed into chapters. It, stuff or like that. articles that are getting pulled apart and shuffled back together as I understand the argument in a fuller way. But there are articles over the last several years since Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom came out, including there's no such thing as ideal theory, contrapolitanism. Those are probably the two most important pieces of the project so far. Uh, though these writings on libertarianism, especially one called political libertarianism, have also formed part of this as I tried to think about what it would be like to reform libertarian ideas in light of this Babylonian approach that I'm – So it's like a, like a 21st century libertarian city of God. Like it's sort of like how do you – how do you like sort of orient yourself politically and morally in a – a world where you're never going to be completely in charge and you can't impose your will. You know, there, there, there will be a chapter toward the end that is about that for libertarians. But because I think these are endemic problems, I think these are problems for all contractarians and all Rousseauians and all those progressives I was disagreeing with in the Vox Symposium who imagined the growth of moral knowledge. Um, these are really, really widespread kind of errors about what the political world is like. And I, if I thought that all I was doing was correcting a weird little heresy in libertarianism, then that wouldn't energize me to spend five plus years of my life on a book. I think these are deep problems in how we understand politics. And I have an example, as an example, the ways that it confuses things in libertarian thought. But I don't think libertarianism is any more subject to it than everyone else in political life is. Well, I I cannot wait to read it. And I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, that uh, if it fulfills your your dream, as you've just sort of, the, to the extent to which I've been able to glimpse it, that will be a truly, truly great book. I mean, that will be kind of 
your thing. That'll be like the thing you're remembered for. Like that, that could be really, really good. Um, but anyway, <laughs> but I uh, need to get it done first. You need to get it done first, and uh, and and so we will finish the podcast, and and then you'll go home and and, and work on get it. Get to work. <laughs> All right. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much for having right, me. Take care.